Hello listeners, welcome back to the 7th TFA Daily World Cup podcast of our World Cup series. I'm your host Adam Scully, and we have another exciting episode for you all today. The last 24 hours have shown up some wonderfully exciting matches, some wonderful goals, and some surprising results. In this episode of the podcast, we will tactically review the games between Portugal and Ghana, Brazil's second-half domination of Serbia, Iran's eyebrow-raising put-down of woeful Wales, and Senegal's scintillating victory over a lame Qatar. There's lots to get into in this episode, and I'm joined by TFA analyst Alfie Pearson and Ronnie Dog Media's head of betting and affiliates, Lucas Mondello, as we review the tactics from each of the four matches in yet another action-packed episode. Before we get into the tactics from each game, Lucas will be going through the latest odds on the betting market regarding each team, and so we ask that you make sure you gamble responsibly when taking the advice on board. So without further ado, let's dive right into the analysis. Lucas, Alfie, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to get into the these four games we're going to review between Portugal and Ghana, Brazil, Serbia, Wales, Iran, and Senegal and Qatar. There's a lot to get through, so we'll dive straight in, starting with the game between Portugal and Ghana. Alfie, talk to me about the second half mainly. The first half I found very dull. Portugal had a couple of a couple of chances. Um, I don't think they were as electric as they were in the second half and in the second half they were pretty decent what changed for them and then why as well I'll ask you about Ghana's midfield I found it quite open at times in the second half could you explain to me you know what happened and what what did Fernando Santos look to change in the second half so I'll I'll let you know why you thought the first half might have been a bit dull because Ghana were really compact in the 5-3-2 looking to, to force outside centre-mids to cover quite a bit of distance into the wide areas with the wing-backs being pinned. But that wasn't really much of an issue because Portugal's narrow 4-3-3 diamond midfield, it just it, everything was in front of Ghana. So the narrow 4-3-3 it facilitated combinations between players, but mainly we saw some effective rotations to open passing lanes and progress possession into the attacker from Portugal. So Portugal would look to have most often, the, the, the full-back would occupy the widest channel and ping Ghana's wing-back. This meant that Portugal's front three, who started really high up against Ghana's back three, could then look to drift into wide areas. So by drifting into wide areas, Ghana's centre-mids would be attracted to the attacker's movement and try and keep the attacker in the cover shadow. And Ghana's centre-backs were really reluctant to actually step out and jump from the defensive line. So because of that, one of the other Portugal attackers could then drop off to receive. But after receiving, there wasn't much penetration due to a lack of runners beyond the defensive line. So in the second half, Portugal looked to circulate possession at a greater speed and increase the directness towards the forward line. Um, obviously, Rafael Leal's appearance off the bench, is a, he looks to stretch the defensive line. And we also saw Joao Felix look to do it more more frequently in the second half as well. Were you surprised he didn't start Rafael Leo? Because he has been one of the most exciting forwards in Europe this season. And last season, of course, when AC Milan won the Serie A for the first time since, I think it was 2010 or 2011. Um, or was it before that, maybe? Anyway, it was around that time. Anyway, Rafael Leo was so, so exciting and he was... You know, I love watching him. He's one of my favorite players in Europe to watch. But he was on the bench, obviously. Yes, he came off and and, and he scored. Were you surprised by his admission from the starting eleven? I I agree with you. I think he's brilliant to watch. I think he's able to provide solutions against any sort of defensive block, whether that's a high line you can exploit him behind, but also with a low block, he's he's very comfortable receiving the ball and creating opportunities for himself. 
think we could all see in the first half that needed someone to stretch down his back line, offer a running behind. That's what Leao probably does best, definitely does best out of the options that Portugal had. So, yeah, it was a, it was a glaring issue in the first half that I think we, we could all see that Leao was the man that would change the game. And eventually he did come on and, and make that impact. Lucas, before the tournament, you look at Portugal's squad. They should be up there for one of the favourites to win the tournament. I mean, they have an incredible squad from Cristiano Ronaldo to Bruno Fernandes to, um, of course, they have Ruben Neves, Rafael Leao, Diogo Dallo, João Cancelo, Ruben Diaz. I mean, it goes on and on and on. But for some reason, and maybe it's just my reasoning, I feel Fernando Santos holds them back just a little bit. And I know in his press conference he spoke about wanting them to be more attacking and they he well he, he said that his team will be very creative I didn't really see that in the first half second half was much much better of course do you agree with me or do you disagree that Fernando Santos almost holds these players back and I mean this is the best Portuguese side we've had since the early noughties I'd, I'd argue I agree with you I believe the team behaved in very distinct ways if you compare both halves of that game and we have seen a very let's say, unpredictable end of the game. So with so much added time, you have risk until the very end, which we are seeing. And it was a clear example of that distant, precise game. And and Portugal, at the end of the day, still improved in the eyes of the market in terms of chances to, to go all the way and win the tournament because... I was mentioning in my last participation that I thought the odds were a bit big. They, we had 19 to 1 on average. And after the first victory, and, and con, you know, considering the tournament as a global factor, uh, a set of factors that has also big teams like Germany and then Argentina losing the first games, we now have Portugal with odds in the house of 13 to 1. So it's like a, a significant drop. And they're considered like uh, they're being taken more seriously by mm. the betting markets. And within the market of this game, there was no big surprise. Actually, the market really expected them to win. But in terms of what you asked in a more like tactical, tactical you know, approach, I would say that, yes, personally, I would like to see Ronaldo more like a striker and, you know, the team trying to explore some kind of, uh, you know, storm of asses with the attacking midfielders that they have in the prem, like Bruno Fernandes and uh, Bernardo Silva. And we also have good wingers like Rafael Leon that weren't really used the best way possible. I agree with you guys. So, yeah, I think there's some potential that still needs to be unleashed, if you will. No, I fully agree. And I think that over the last couple of seasons at least, I mean, I know they won the 2016 Euros with a much lesser squad and it was probably okay to play that way. You know, they didn't have, the core group of players were still decent, but the overall squad wasn't as good. So I think they, Fernando Santos got away with playing that way a lot more then. And then of course they won the UEFA Nations League, I believe in 2019. But after that, I've just, in the Euros especially, the underperformance was quite stark. That game against Hungary, they won 3-0. I believe there was two penalties they were far from exceptional, even though it was 3-0. The scoreline really flattered to deceive them. So going into the World Cup, when people talk about favourites to win the tournament, in my perspective, you know, not, of course, not talking about the betting markets, just my own opinion. Portugal went up there because 
because of the man in the dugout, even though he has a track record of winning an international trophy with, with Portugal, I just believe that I believe that someone else could get much more out of this group of players, as I said, which is probably their best generation in, in, in two decades. But we'll move on now, Lucas. You'll be happy to know. I'm sure as you do know, Brazil won 2 0 against Serbia. This is very uh, unprofessional for me to admit, but I watched this game in a pub. And when Richarlison scored his incredible goal, I was the only one that roared in the entire pub because I was in disbelief of what I saw. No one else even watched the game or cared. And I was good. Um, I looked like a bit of a creep. Lucas, I'll come to you first. How happy were you with the with the performance? Well, it was surprising to me because we had seen some loose ends in terms of the last friendlies. I was very worried for Brazil in the sense that um, I repeat this constantly that the last big game of Brazil and Argentina before the World Cup was the Copa America final. Actually, just touching on that, Lucas, sorry, I spoke to Lee on the podcast a few days ago and I brought up your point and you were spot on about Argentina. I mean, you see what happened to Argentina against Saudi Arabia. You made the same point regarding Brazil as you did with Argentina. The last big game they played was the Copa America final. And of course, when they get onto the big stage, they 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 flapped really against Saudi Arabia. So yeah, it was it was a decent point you made. Yeah, and you know what? I guess that even you know watching what happened with Germany and Argentina for Brazil, it was like a bit like a, a red flag, some kind of uh, you know warning. So I guess to be a team playing in the last match they won of a group was kind of uh, you know a good factor. It was somewhat lucky for them because they they watch all the tragedies happen before they were. Uh, to have their own debut and, and in the end of the they 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 did well i saw some interesting stuff for example we had you know attacking players attentive in the men marking when pressuring we had for example rafinha marking very well helping danilo be even before he was injured so the team was attentive we also had brazil a bit lucky because Serbia didn't choose the best tactics in my opinion you know, benching Vlaovic and, and not using Kostic, it was like not what we had expected. We all had expected Serbia a little bit more like a, of a problem to Brazil in terms of men marking. So Brazil had all the space they needed to progress. They had some, they had a time that they needed to, you know, adjust after the initial pressure, after some 30 minutes to score the goal that they needed to, you know, feel more comfortable and, and do what I do best. So, yeah, I think it was a solid start. In my opinion, it was the worst game of the group, but uh, the injuries now are a big challenge. We just have the news that uh, Neymar and Danilo won't be playing anymore in the group stage. Mm -hmm. And I think the worst thing about this is uh, team chemistry won't develop the way it should so that can go, they, you know, can go all the way, and this is a problem for a team that you know hasn't been playing together, as I mentioned. So Brazil just won't have the chance to become a team with Morton chemistry during the group stage. So it's like the round of sixteen will likely be the day in which Neymar and Danilo will be back into the team. So it's like um, they won't have much wiggle room to to get together and get used to to being 
you know playing together so i think in terms of neymar though yeah i think just touching on your point in terms of neymar the the fact that the toughest game in the group is now over will obviously benefit brazil in terms of or will will kind of soften the blow a bit in terms of losing neymar especially because you've beaten serbia now in my opinion who were the second favorites to go through in that group i watched switzerland and cameroon switzerland look quite subpar so i think you can probably get away with without neymar just for the rest of the group now that the game, the toughest game, is over. Yeah, I, I have, you know, a view that uh, big games like the last games of the tournament, like the final, the semifinals, are games that uh, seeing chemistry plays a very important role in your stress. You tend to, you know, revert to patterns that you know in terms of um, the space, who you think is going to be behind you to, to pass the ball, who's going to be close to you, you know, this kind of stuff that training and, and playing together gives you, and it just won't happen. So Brazil is now the favorite team in the eyes of the markets again to win the World Cup, but they will have challenges. I mean, if they win, it's going to be one of the most remarkable ones in their history. Yeah. Uh, Alfie, the first, again, like the Portugal game, I thought the first half, it was a lot closer than the second. Serbia, I thought, were okay in the first half and they did well. What went wrong in the second half then? I think in the second half, we've seen on social media that Neymar's got a bit of stick from his performance before his injury. Mm-hmm. I feel like the way he his movement in the second half actually freed up Vinicius Junior a lot more. So, as expected, Brazil were in a, a 3-2-5 shape with Vinicius Junior and Rafinha as the whip holders to utilise their excellent 1v1 ability but I thought in the first half I struggled to find them frequently in Serbia's 5-3-2 shape they were very centrally compact but they prioritised defending their right side up against Brazil's left of Vinicius and Neymar so the right side centre mid which is usually good at those but occasionally Tadic would help drop in and provide numerical superiority would cheat and jump across and move wide to prevent Vinicius having a 1v1 against Zivkovic the, the right wing back um, and Neymar's in the first half his movement was still around the left half space so Brazil centre mids could just shuttle across and cover the space and prevent any verticality from Brazil but in the second half he started to drift with a bit more of a freer role and moving away from the left half space which attracted more of the central midfielders from Serbia which isolated Vinicius Junior a lot more in the second half and we saw him uh, provide an assist for Charleston as well didn't he? He did, and I mean, all the talk about the goal and how brilliant it was from Richardson to flick the ball up and then score in the manner that he did. So little has been spoken about how incredible that ball was from Vinicius Junior. I think it was outside the boot pass as well. It was genuinely an amazing assist. And as you said, he was getting into those 1v1 situations. And I think when you get Vinicius Junior into a 1v1 situation, there's only one winner. I mean, he's absolutely incredible. You could see the Serbia defender backed off. He wasn't going to He wasn't going to challenge him in the 1v1. He just wasn't willing to engage in that duel because he knew the outcome, what it would be. So he obviously felt as if he could guide Vinicius Junior down you know, the sides to the byline where he can deal with maybe the cross coming in. Vinicius Junior just dropped the shoulder, cut inside, bang, ball across, and then Richarlison scored in the manner he did. And now we'll move on to that goal from Richarlison. Lucas, Richarlison is now the favourite to win the Golden Boot after his brace against Serbia. Talk to me about the Golden Boot race down for the World Cup. That's heating up at the minute. 
Yes, now he's leading the race in in the betting markets a little bit, let's say, ahead of Mbappé with the slightly lower odds, which reflects the expectation of the markets that uh, he'll produce more goals. And this is an interesting market that we always have to remember that it, it doesn't just take into account the the quality of the player, but how often the player is expected to play. So, for example, Messi you now has bigger odds because Argentina may not, you know, be pretty much gone in the second game. So it's like if that happens, who knows if he will even play game number three. And with France, we have the opposite situation because if if they win against Denmark and they have a comfortable situation, maybe the coach will rest some players and Mbappé could be one of them, at least during some part of the third game of the group stage. So this this is reflected in this sense. And uh, yeah, we can say that he was pretty much an outsider with much bigger odds before the tournament began. But those that follow him in the Premier League and his career from the beginning know that he had all this potential. And uh, it, some stories are almost incredible in the world of football. You know, his club Fluminense in Brazil that sold him to what for when he first arrived in the Premier League. They were doing so bad financially that they had to sell him to pay electricity utility bills for like one million dollars so it's like definitely a good business for the one that bought him the first time for this price right yeah and uh, it, it is interesting though because Richardson is never a player I would tip to be a golden boot winner in any competition whether it be the Premier League or the Champions League or you know any competition that he's in because he's not He's a great goal scorer, I could be wrong. He chips in with some wonderful goals and he's a great team player. But I just, I never put him down to be a 25, 30 goal season striker. So the fact that he is the favourite now after the brace against Serbia is very interesting. But I also, I wanted to ask you, though, does, does it take into account the quality of the opposition coming up? Because we all watched the Cameroon and Switzerland game yesterday. Uh, I think a Brazil forward line looking at both those teams now are quite hungry. Well, these things can never be discarded from the equation that uh, calculates these expectations. But to be honest, in my opinion, one strong factor that needs to be considered is that in Brazil, he's been like a true number nine. While in the UK, at domestic football level, he's often a winger. Mm-hmm. So it's like he's in a position to to in which he'll, you know... Profit from yeah. the chance of scoring and, and assets from his teammates, especially if Neymar really doesn't play much, uh, even be you know beyond the, the round of 16. So it's like he's going to be more important to the team to score goals, and his positioning should perhaps explain a lot of these um, these odds that we have right now. I think that's a great point, actually, because yeah, with Spurs he plays in that front three, whether it be with, with Son and Kane, and then of course when he was at Everton. When they were half decent, he played, of course, with uh, Dominic Calvert-Lewin as the predominant centre-forward. He would win most of the aerial duels, and he was the guy they would mainly look to score goals. And Richarlison would make so much run, so many runs into the channels and do a lot of the off-the-ball work. So that, that, that's a very good point. We'll move on now, though, to the Wales and Iran game. For me, this is uh, interestingly, one of the 
well, definitely most the most surprising victories of the World Cup so far alongside the Japan and Germany game and, of course, Saudi Arabia and Argentina. I was shocked by the result of this. I was also incredibly impressed with Iran's performance in the game, coming off the back of the one of the most humiliating performances I've seen in a World Cup in a long time. They were really poor against England. And they went into this game. Carlos Kiros changed the team shape. I'm actually writing the tactical analysis of it for TFA, which will be out in the morning for those that are listening that are interested. Kiros changed the team shape. Wales couldn't cope with it, and they created very, very, very few opportunities, and Iran looked amazing. I mean, Iran could have won 4-5 or five now, let's be real. I mean, they hit the, the post twice in 10 seconds, I think. Uh, Wayne Hennessy made a couple of fantastic saves, and I believe the fourth goal from outside the area came in this match too, if I'm not mistaken, in the 98th minute, which was the winner. Um, Alfie, talk to me about Iran's performance before we get into why Wales were lacklustre, to say the least. I thought it was great to see Iran operate with a front two of Mediterranean Sarah Azmoun, getting their two best players on the pitch. Despite neither of them scoring, I really like both of their performances, especially Taremi, who was incredible up top. And we saw their ability to combine. And what I like most about the duo was actually their, their contrasting movements. I think, Adam, you mentioned in a, in a podcast earlier this week, I think it was about Van Hal's fullbacks and analogy about the, the steering, steering wheel. wheel. Yeah, I love that analogy. So <laughs> we saw Taremi, for example, when he would drop away from a defensive line, we would see Asmu make the opposite movement of stretching the defence and vice versa. But the 4 3 the 4-4-2 formation also helped them defensively. So we saw a bit of a man-marking approach from Iran where their shape became a 4-4-1-1. So Wales did have a free centre-back occasionally and there was potential to, to overload in the final third by committing more men forward and potentially creating the, the five the five versus four for Wales. But yeah, Wales were so, so poor. We'll touch on it in a moment as well. Yeah, I, I just want to jump in on your point on Iran because against England, Kirosh clearly wanted to cut off space between the lines. So what he did was, I mean, originally in the couple of matches he had in the friendly matches before the, the World Cup, he went with a 4-1-4-1. But then against England, the fourth match, he went with a 5-4-1. And he obviously tried to stop, to cut off the space between the lines. And when the ball would reach them areas, the, the centre the center backs would step out, be aggressive. But then when they were when England had the ball with their back line, one of the central midfields would step out, but it would leave space in behind. So you watch England's fourth goal in that game. The right central midfielder for Iran steps out to close down Harry Maguire. He leaves the entire passing lane open to Mason Mount between the lines. Balls play and, and of course the central defender who's at Mount believes that the passing line's cut out and it's not. Maguire plays a brilliant ball through the mount, bounces at the start and out of Shaw ball into Bellingham and he heads it home. In this game, they went with a 4-4-2, but what happened was, of course, the central midfielders didn't need to step out because you had those those front two pressing Wales as back three. And then also, when one did step out to press, they would have one of the, the other centers, so say, Asmoon stepped out to press one of the central defenders. Taremi would cover the, the nearest midfielder so you couldn't get access into them. I, I, I think if, if Iran had gone with the 5-4-1 against Wales, they would have been carved open just as they were against England because your central midfielder has to step out and join that front line with the centre forward. And you're leaving gaps in there and they just, they're not good at closing it. So I was really impressed by Iran and especially with their attack and play. They were so direct, but it, was, it wasn't it was just aimless long balls. They were hitting those channels and they were, they were reaching the player. They were reaching the target. I thought, as you said, the, the, the movement from the two centre-forwards was amazing. And Asmoon especially, 
he, he caused havoc against Wales's backline. He was his movement was unbelievable. He knew exactly when to run, and maybe that's what they missed last week against England. But I also think it was more so a, a, a massive structural issue. So definitely with with Asmoon, his running in behind in transition was brilliant. But I, I really like the right side coming around with Golazi Day mm-hmm. and uh, um, Ramin Rezian, I believe he's called the right back. They combined brilliantly to progress possession. But I feel like this should have also affected Wales in possession. I feel like they should have maximised their involvement of Conor Roberts in the game, using their right side with with Bale's tendency to drift from from the centre towards the right because of how strong Iran's other side was. So if I could have maybe kept possession much better on on the right side of of Wales' right side, rather than allowing Iran to have possession on Iran's right side, we Mm -hmm. could have seen much better performance from Wales. Yeah, and I think touching on that point as well, to have a guy like Kiefer Moore in the box who's 6'5", 6'6", and you don't use your best wide players to get the ball into him and I know that sounds quite basic but it is true he's gargantuan you can't defend against him in the box Iran couldn't match him aerially I don't think anyone can at the top the entire tournament you know Virgil van Dijk would struggle against him he's that good in the air so I think it was just quite peculiar Lucas I'll come to you then on Wales is this it now I mean in order for them to progress I think England have to beat the USA tonight and then they have to beat England next week I believe or I think maybe I've got that wrong and they are out now completely. No, no, I think you're right. And yeah, uh, yeah. something else needs to happen, you know, beyond their own games and their own left games. So, yeah, collecting just one point in six doesn't make life any easy mm. to, to any team. But I was really surprised with the movements of the markets prior to this game earlier today because... We had Wales with odds on average of uh, 2.14 to win the game. And honestly, considering that we have a UEFA selection versus a team from Asia, you normally would see odds a little lower, meaning Wales with more perceived chances of winning, even at the handicap scenarios. But uh, yeah, I think the market predicted this one that um, Iran would have chances at least to collect a point and they went all the way. So it's like, uh, it's surprising and noble to do so, especially as, you know, (laughs) after being trashed the way they were by England, this is the kind of stuff that is, you know, some some beautiful stuff in football because it's kind of like what Brazil suffered in, in 2014 and, and it's like after you know 6-2 is no joke I mean psychologically to a team so yeah Iran seems to be pretty much alive and it was basically the most Carlos Queiroz performance I could have ever expected whereas last week was the most anti Carlos Queiroz performance ever it was amazing and now we have the game next week between Iran and USA is absolutely vital because if USA don't win tonight and even if they do, I mean, it's still vital, but, you know, the, the group is just blown wide open. Alfie, you've one more, one more point to make before we move on. Just when we were talking about Wales and their chance of progression, I must admit that about half-time, maybe start the second half, despite Iran's good performance, I was thinking that potentially we could see the group ending with a second-place team actually going through with just two points with if England were to, were to win against USA and against Wales next week and the other fixtures ended as draws. Draw, yeah. we, we could have seen second place go through. 
Would that be would that be the lowest points tally than someone's progressed with? I, I mean, I don't know my my research dating back from before the nineties. I'd imagine, but surely that would be the lowest points anyone's progressed with. Twenty ten with Italy. New Zealand. And oh, you're right. Yeah, Slovakia New Zealand. And, and me and Lucas actually, got yeah. knocked out. I think that was. I think that was quite tight. Yeah, uh, me and Lucas spoke about this recently. Actually, that uh, New Zealand were the only team unbeaten in that tournament. They drew all three games. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, we'll move on now to the final game, which was between Qatar and Senegal. I think that's it now for Qatar. I think if the game that's on now in 15 minutes between the Netherlands and Ecuador finishes as a draw, they're officially and mathematically out. As things stand, they're minus four goal difference, zero points from six. They are out basically in our eyes anyway, but not mathematically. Lucas, were, were the odds as bad? Have, have Qatar done as badly as the market has predicted them to? I think from the second round on, I mean, the second match today was pretty much as expected. And um, actually, I was following the match. And to be honest, I guess there was some good opportunity for life betting on Senegal, especially when they were, you know, holding the ball and pressure in the attacking field in a way that Qatar was just not having any counterattack whatsoever. That's, you know, when you spot a good life betting opportunity. But the first round was weird because you had almost like two years of uh, odds available before the World Cup kicked off. And you, you had this, let's say, uh, dilemma between bettors to, you know, believe more on the sports side of what happened, which was Ecuador winning, which in my opinion was the tendency, or some kind of faith on, on the fact that they were, you know, the only team with the home factor. And uh, we had even the crazy rumors about, you know, Buying off the players of Ecuador, which never happened, in my opinion. Well, we all Not thought even... it did in the first five minutes when the VAR VAR call happened, which was um. I I didn't <laughs> because <laughs> because of the betting markets, as I told you. Because even if these things, you know, attempts to buy people off are confined to the sports world, almost someone that knows about this will try to hurt the markets, and and it's too sensible these days. I mean, anyways, I think Qatar was, you know, as disappointing as possible. And perhaps the third game won't even matter much to them. Yeah, I think that, to be honest, I expected a lot more, you know, players from different countries switching allegiance to to try to play for Qatar. And we can say that we had at least a culturally cohesive team, that it was truly Qatar, so, well... They got what they have. <laughs> yeah, and it was to, to, to be honest with you, I, I'm I'm not surprised by how Qatar have done. Um, I thought today they were a bit better than against Ecuador, just in terms of overall entertainment. But I still think there was serious problems with their their build up. I mean, Afif is a centre forward, and he and he drops as deep as the central defenders to pick the ball because they have nobody that can progress the ball from deep, literally nobody. So he has to do that job. Which which absolutely blows me away because then you you're, well you're missing him further up the pitch then to play to because he is technically he's a brilliant tactical player so when you're progressing the ball from deep you want Afif to essentially play to Afif but he's not there so then that's where the struggles happen for Qatar Alfie I'll actually ask you first of all about um, Qatar's struggles but then we'll touch on Senegal because they were 
I didn't think they were that bad against the Netherlands either, but they just could not put the ball in the net from I think it was fourteen or sixteen shots. And today they 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 rectified that. So speak to me about Qatar first. Yeah, so I covered Qatar for the for the magazine preview, and we we discussed them quite quite well for for the World Cup preview podcast. Mm-hmm. Your points on our Premier Thief, we knew them pre-tournament. They've continued during the tournament. I think in the second half when we saw Montari come on, it allowed Afif to, to drop back a bit more and they still had Almodawi and Montari up, up front, which definitely gives Afif more options to play forward and him dropping so deep it doesn't it didn't really impact the numbers ahead of the ball. I think they actually started with a with a decent decent low block. It forced Senegal into into the wider areas and as we said in, in the preview, we would see the wing-backs of Qatar jump to press or the centre-mid would shift across to close them down. The shape did change a bit when they did that, but I, I thought Qatar remained quite compact, to be honest. Um, moving on to Senegal, when I saw the line-up pre-game, I saw the switch to the 4-4-2. I was really happy to see that. I thought bringing in Ismail Jacobs to start at left-back, I thought he performed well in his, in his minimal, in his little cameo against, against Netherlands. I was hoping that Senegal would commit six men forward against Qatar's back five with both of the full-backs allowing the, wing, the, the wingers to invert and still have a front two. But we, we didn't really see that. But the full-backs remained quite deep and by staying deep, the wingers couldn't infer, invert and have much effect. Yeah, I agree. And, and Senegal now will have a very close eye on the match that's about to kick off in 10 minutes as the Netherlands take on Ecuador, because, of course, the result of that will directly impact them and give them great hope going into next week's game against Ecuador, which will be a, well, I'd imagine it will be a winner-takes-all kind of situation, depending on the result of this game. Because that was a, an action-packed 24 hours of football, and we have another action-packed 24 hours of football coming up. It's football non-stop forever. Now, for the next couple of weeks, it's just football, 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 but I'm really looking forward to watching all the games that I've tried to do so far Lucas Alfie thank you so much for joining me today this was a great chat to all the listeners at home I hope you enjoyed too and make sure to tune in tomorrow as we tactically review the games between the Netherlands and Senegal England and the USA Tunisia and Australia and Poland and Saudi Arabia goodbye for now